Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Harj Tagger, founder and CEO of Triple Byte. Harj, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So Harj, you're also the, you're the founder of Triple Byte. You're also the first partner ever at Y Combinator? Yeah, well, the, the first one outside of the founders. Outside of, so. outside of the founders. And then you also uh, helped found Initialize. Yeah, with Gary and Alexis. So uh, you then wanted to go back and start a company. Why uh, in the recruiting space? Out of all the companies you could have started, wh- why Triple Byte and wh- what other ideas were you playing with? I didn't actually set out to start a recruiting company. I think the the chain of events here is that I very much put the desire to start a company ahead of knowing which company I wanted to start. Um, and this was just something that was kind of bubbling away in the back of my mind while I was working at Y Combinator. So I didn't actually go. So when I joined Y Combinator, this is early 2010, uh, I didn't actually pick it as a long-term career option like there was sort of like a confluence of things were going on i'd started uh, my first company with my cousin corvier tagger who's now ceo of zeus and patrick collison who's now ceo of stripe and we so the company was acquired pretty early on uh automatic yeah automatic yeah five million dollars yeah uh so we were sort of we'd been working on it for like just over a year like we weren't super excited about the long-term trajectory of it so it was like a, a good quick exit and a win for us and our investors um I was kind of got done at our acquiring company. I'd stay there for a little bit and then was figuring out next steps for me in general. And I'd actually come back to catch up with Paul and Jessica, the founders of Y Combinator, about kind of like, you know, I was planning on doing another startup, all this kind of stuff. They then started telling me about they had much bigger expansive plans for Y Combinator itself and that in order to grow Y Combinator, there'd need to be someone else working on it because there's only the two of them uh, and asked me if I'd come hang out for three months and, you know, worst case scenario meet some people do jump off do my own thing best case scenario i stay for longer because there's like exciting stuff going on at yc and were those plans that paul outlined for you similar to what yc looks like today or how does it compare yeah discontent like erringly so it's wow. actually one of those cases where there was well here, let's say there was a very clear non-obvious and exciting vision behind Y Combinator and the way Paul and Jessica described it to me, and this is, let's see, we're coming at like end of 2009 now. So almost, almost 10 years ago. Wow. Um, Paul had just was fascinated by the idea of like how when a company gets to scale and becomes a big company, it doesn't, it loses its ability to like innovate. Um, it's probably a bit of a dramatic statement, but like certainly seems to be a decline in like yeah. speed. Um, and he was always interested in this idea of like, what might a new kind of organization look like that kind of had the benefits of a big company, like resources, brand, all of this kind of stuff. But like the incentives were aligned so that each sort of unit was yeah. just optimizing for itself. And that was actually the right thing for the organization. And so it was all like sort of broad strokes like this, but the idea, he really didn't think of Y Combinator as a, a investment fund. It was, hey, like if we fund lots and lots of companies and we have a little bit of a share in each company, but fundamentally the companies are running themselves. And if a company doesn't work, you don't have to like fire them, like the market fires them. And if it succeeds, it can like gather in like other people who didn't. So all, all this kind of stuff was always really interesting. And, and if you look at YC today, it's still a little bit TBD, exactly what it is, but it's not too far off that idea of this like big sort of sort of decentralized organization where the value is really in the people right and uh before we get to trouble like 
you start when you started automatic uh, with your cousin and, and Patrick. Patrick was what, eighteen, nineteen? Uh, yeah, around that. So yeah, eighteen. I think he was eighteen. Yeah. What, what was that like seeing a you know one of the most impressive founders today at sort of eighteen, nineteen? And could you have predicted it? I mean, the answer is always yes, right? But like, could you really? <laughs> like, then you would have joined Stripe, or I don't, I don't know, or invested in Stripe. Maybe you did, but how, how do you think about that? It's okay. It's 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 sort of a little bit difficult. I feel to tell the story of Patrick because um, I don't think people should extrapolate too yeah. far from it, right? Okay. So the, the simple answer to the question is: Was it clear early on, within like an hour of meeting Patrick, that he was an outlying level of sort of exceptionalness? Um, like yes, um, but like there are very very many successful founders I've been around through YC who like that like. Yeah who had turned out to be exceptional, that wasn't clear, right? Patrick was just like a, a particular confluence of um, of attributes that you don't see very rarely. But yeah, it, it was very clear early on that he, he was exceptional. Yeah. And so, okay, so you go, you, you are at YC, you go, go out, now you want to start a company again. And why AAA? The and way maybe you describe what AAA is. Yes, okay, well, AAA is, is a... Um, a way for companies to hire engineers and engineers to find new companies to join the simplest plain english version of of talking about it i think what's unique about it is instead of doing that in like the traditional way where you sort of collect together lots of resumes and then you match your resumes to job descriptions we've built our own testing system to find uh people who have really like high level of skill but might not necessarily stand out based on their background and that idea actually came from my co-founder armon who i'd met through yc because he'd started a company social cam which was acquired by autodesk and he had this just a really unusual background himself where uh, he's tremendously smart like most people who work with Armand will say he's one of the brilliant most brilliant engineers that they, they've worked with but he sort of he'd been homeschooled at a young age grew up in this sort of hippie commune didn't go to sort of like a, a well-known university and when he wanted to break into Silicon Valley he had a hard time getting hired anywhere except Justin.tv and Justin.tv which would then go to spin out become Twitch they had this like hiring philosophy of hey like we're never gonna be able to hire the Google like the Google people or like outcompete like the best hottest startups. So we're going to have to find ways to identify really smart people that get overlooked. And right. so they were willing it's to take a shot. PayPal on. philosophy as well. Right? Yeah, all, yeah. All that, right. So they were like, let's hire unproven, super talented people and just take a shot on them. Um, and that worked great for Twitch and social cam. Uh, and so Armand just sort of had this like, real personal connection to the idea of uh, helping companies hire starting with engineers, but like just generally the idea of like undiscovered talent. That was exciting to me because that was actually a big chunk of what I worked on at YC. Like it's hard to think of it now, but like YC has so much brand that there's, you know, can get well-known founders or repeat founders are going through. But back in 2009, really, if anyone even had a hope of raising a small seed round, there was just like no way they were going to do YC. And so um, versus us trying to convince that, group of uh, person to try and do YC we try to get really good identifying who's going to get overlooked by every other investor and how do we spot patterns and and identify those people and that that was like the class of problem I've always been really interested in right and so what do you what do you think you sort of uniquely understand about spotting founders or or spotting talent that you think is underappreciated that you really have to judge them relative I mean it sounds but you really have to judge them relative to their peer group and just like 
where they are in life and not in sort of an absolute sense, right? So kind of amusing anecdote here, but Michael Seibel was now sort of a CEO at Y Combinator. I remember he was a part-time Combinator, a part-time partner at Y Combinator, and we were sort of sitting in on YC interviews for the first time. And I remember we had this sort of group come in, like I think they'd been like 10 years at Dell, like um, like super solid, came in with a really solid seeming idea. Uh, and we decided to pass on them for for yc and then we next group in was like this 17 year old group of like wacky like founders who um we ended up funding right and on the surface it just seems like that it wasn't actually necessarily about the ages or anything like that it was more that when we dug into kind of what's the trajectory of that like group of people at dell there wasn't it wasn't really anything like super showed a really great trajectory the 17 year olds had been just like working on like various side projects and the side projects themselves were never like gigantic but like relative to kind of where they were and the resources they had it was really impressive and so we like trained ourselves to find signals like that as opposed to kind of being blown away by like paper credentials so slope and growth yeah and so how are you at right you guys are building something like the common app for how are you incorporating some of that principles into the test we started out as kind of like a common app but i think where we really ended up focusing our time is building out a objective online assessment using so taking what's out there in sort of standard testing technology. So this is maybe a bit specific, but there's, there's the idea of like adaptive testing, which is like, you know, if you do like the, um, the GMAT or something, yeah. this idea of like you adjust, you don't just give everyone a single assessment. Right. You like adapt the questions you ask them based on how they've answered so far. Um, those tests tend to be really good at predicting who does well on tests, which right. is like not necessarily that helpful. What we want to do with TripleByte is take that same kind of technology that exists in academia for assessments and testing and apply it to actual real world outcomes. So build an assessment that actually predicts who's going to go on and get hired by companies is like the first step. Longer term vision, we just want to predict who's really good. But to begin with, it's like, how do we build this adaptive test that predicts who's actually going to do get hired by these companies? And if we build that tech, can we use it to identify people that companies wouldn't hire without us? And that's where like, that's where the focus of Trillbyte has gone in is we can now at scale, just identify the best technical talent in the world and present them to companies with all this additional data beyond just kind of where they went to college or where they're right. working now. And so what are example signals that would go into this test that pe- other people would perhaps underrate? It so we've so first off, we set we partitioned out from sort of putting sort of things you might test into two buckets, like hard skills, um technical skill and like softer skills right and our our sort of thesis is softer skills like everything that is like hard to standardize and that's always going to be specific to the company hustle teamwork all that kind of stuff long term we're just super interested in like expanding into that but to begin with we were like let's just focus on raw technical skill and let's see what we can do if we build sort of online multiple choice timed questions and that format's particularly good for getting structured labeled data that you can apply actual machine learning to and let's see what signals that gives us and we actually found that things like the timing to answer questions particular combinations of questions um uh all give you way more signal than you'd expect but uh, the, the actual key thing is just What's unique is not actually necessarily what you're asking, at least in True White's case, it's not actually the questions themselves. Like anyone could just like go and copy all the questions we're asking. It's more that for every type of question, we at this point have like hundreds of thousands of data points around what does doing well on this kind of question, how well does that correlate with doing well at actual like job interviews at specific types of companies. So the value is all like in the data that rests underneath it. Yeah. And so when you were an investor at YC and initialized, 
Uh, I'm curious how you evaluated recruiting companies and maybe you say, Hey, we don't consider ourselves a recruiting company, but it's my understanding that LinkedIn is really the only meg, like Decacorn plus recruiting company in the last 15 plus years. And there's been Glassdoor, maybe a couple that are 1 billion, but all your ones, but what's up with the space? So, hey, so, okay, so answering that from a YC perspective, uh, YC never cared about markets, right? Like YC was just, very much about it's not not quite true we cared first and foremost about sort of team slope of like the people um did we want them in the yc network um uh to the extent of even if we thought someone was working on an unpromising idea but would potentially like go on to do really good things like we should we should still fund them uh recruiting yeah. So here's what happens with sort of, I think like recruiting startups. That definitely gets thrown up that, hey, if you compare recruiting to a market like, I don't know, like real estate, there's just like not clear that it supports like multi-billion dollar outcomes. Um, and LinkedIn's the only real like gigantic outcome there. And it wasn't even really a recruiting company. It was something else that, that monetized by it, right? What was that something else? Uh, like it was a, a social net, professional network. It was a professional network that got to massive scale and then found a business model in recruiting as yeah. opposed to, hey, how do we build a really right. great recruiting company? Yeah. Um, I think that what's changed, so I think that really what's changed is that although everyone historically would agree with the maxim that, hey, like your people are your most important asset, we should be really careful about who we hire. Like how data-driven have hiring decisions been over the last decade? Like not a ton, actually. Like probably not at all, really. Um, Even if you look at like applicant tracking systems or most of the software that's been built, there's nothing that's really got mass adoption by pitching, hey, like we can make help you make like better hiring decisions. the world is changing now. And I think actually like a whole combination of social factors, I think the the focus on diversity, the focus on removing bias, the focus on um, preventing discrimination, plus just a, a general trend towards optimizing how companies are run, I think creates an opportunity for multi-billion dollar companies that can make hiring more efficient. And it's the time is now because companies are actually tracking their efficiency at hiring for the first time. And they just haven't done that historically. Yeah. Basically, the opportunity that you're competing is, can you get proprietary data about candidates at scale that allow people to make better hiring? Yeah. And like for, for just like for cheaper, like that's, I think that's a key thing. Like, and in particular metrics, like time to hire cost per hire, like from a pure business perspective, these have not been, well, cost per hire has always been top of mind, but you just, you speak to most sort of companies, even at scale about how good of an understanding do you have the drivers behind your hiring costs. Right. And it's never been super high. It's mostly just like, Hey, I need to hire X hundred people this year. And the way I'm going to do that is by hiring X hundred recruiters to go out and source all of these people. But there's much more of a focus on conversion and efficiency now. And you're somewhat in an adjacent space to AngelList or hired, but recruiting, but they're not getting proprietary data in the way that you are. They're most, I guess, focused on the marketplace angle and the auction style. Can we get candidates a better price? You know, I think hired is so hired's a fair comparison because fundamentally we're solving the same problem of how do we get to, you know, how do we help you hire faster. I think hired has moved more in the direction of we're going to have a real focus on collecting sort of resumes and yeah. known credentials. And we, with Trillbyte, it's, it's not just the proprietary data. It's like we fu- fundamentally, we think of ourselves as a credentialing company. Like yeah. internally, like when we talk about the mission or like the goal, it's like, hey, we're trying to establish ourselves as a new credential. Uh, and I think when you think like that, you just have like a, a different product yeah. roadmap. Um, and so what, what can you teach us about credentials that we might not really understand? So is that, or even testing, is the SAT, is that bogus? Is IQ, is that, <laughs> like, what about the ways we, the common metrics we use to evaluate talent are either bogus or incomprehensive, or maybe they work great. 
Okay, like credentials. So what are the credentials that we most rely on today in like hiring? Uh, probably like college credential, I think, right? Because even if you say, even once you've been working for a bit, the companies you work at are the credential, but like the companies you can work at are determined by the college you went to, right? So ultimately everything reduces down to college. Um, and I think, is it bogus? On average, no, right? On average, the graduate from Harvard is going to be better than the average community college graduate. But is that sort of a level of accuracy and precision that like we should be happy with? Probably not. Um, and so I do think that there's just some, you know, fundamentally there's like opportunity and arbitrage opportunities for companies to look beyond just the college that someone went to and put in the extra work of finding the people who are really smart but necessarily didn't necessarily go to like the top college and then conversely not wasting their time on the people who graduate from top colleges but they were like bottom of the class right um and so i think on that level there's a need to go deeper than just like the college credential there's also just like an interesting sort of alignment like how aligned are the incentives right like this, this gets into more like the the college and student debt debate but you could very much argue like is college actually optimized for teaching students the skills they need to be like hyper productive employees or is it optimized around creating a really great student experience such that people will donate money in the future and leave great yeah. reviews about their experience right um uh there's also i think if you, if you read some like the um brian kaplan stuff around this like how yeah, you could also argue that college is essentially credential conformity and the ability to turn up to lectures from like a set schedule and generally be like a law-abiding citizen that's not going to do anything too crazy which might be great if you're hiring for like a thousand person or but not necessarily great if you're hiring for a startup right why don't companies like google facebook either have their own like competing universities or competing lambda school equivalent boot camp equivalents where they could just get the talent I think I think that's actually where it's trending, right? So I do I, I think that like the the companies at the scale of Google and Facebook are increasingly trending towards going like up the stack, if you speak, right? I think I think the reason they haven't so far is just hiring is not the core focus of any of these companies. Google's probably the closest to a company at scale, you could argue, views hiring as more than just like a, a, a additional function. Um my guess though is that versus them building that out at scale companies like triple by and lambda school will come in and create the new set of credentials that those companies use to better identify talent yeah so i want to get into you gave a, a talk recently and you put it out as a tweet storm on some of the sort of startup principles that you've learned company yeah. building principles you've learned over the years and i want to get to that but b before getting to the specifics do you think that in the last decade uh, something has materially changed in terms of company building? Or do you think that sort of the fundamentals are the fundamentals and they've just sort of proven more and more true in terms of, you know, what to look for a co-founder, just a general company building? How to think uh, about I, I think there's a massive fundamental shift. Um, and I think that massive shift in just starting companies is uh, availability of knowledge. Like, I think when I was starting out, like going through, yeah, when Kovir, Patrick and I were going through like YC in 2007, there just wasn't really that much knowledge about how to yeah. build a startup, right? And, and now fast forward, it's like basically at this point, it's all, it's like a, it's a massively negative signal if you don't even have the basic idea of like, if you don't have some familiarity with generalized startup advice at this point, like, like that, that's like a, a bad sign, right? Um, uh, and I think that has just interesting repercussions for the ecosystem as a whole. Like I think, um, so for example, it just, it, it surely has to increase the quality of the first product 
you launch with for you to get any traction, right? Because you just have, if like knowledge is disseminated, it's cheaper than ever to start a company, more people will start like companies. And in the earlier stages, starting a company essentially means launching a product, right? Um, uh, and so just like the, the competition you're facing to get traction, like just has to go up. And, and to be clear, when I say quality of product, I don't mean like nicer design or that kind of thing. Actually, it potentially is. It's more like fundamentally, you have to solve a real problem and need for someone way better than anyone else who is trying to solve that problem or need can. Um, and ultimately, I think that's great for just consumers and users and customers. Like, I think they just get like a plethora of choices that they didn't have, um, they have before. And I think it also means that from a more philosophical level, I think we'll just start to understand startups better, like what actually drives startups. And I think we'll move away from this sort of cargo cult thing of, oh, you've got to be like a MIT or Harvard dropout to start the next billion dollar company to having enough data points over the next few decades where we can start being a little bit more deterministic about what goes into successfully building companies. I think YC is right at the forefront of this, right? Like has more data and operates at more scale than any single investment firm. Uh, And I think that will just be a tremendous advantage over time. If you were trying to compete with Y Combinator today, how would you do that? <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I mean, to be frank about it, I really, I really, really wouldn't. Um, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of just, I, I, th- I think that the network effects of Y Combinator in terms of a place to attract like founding talent are just at this point like insurmountable. So I think more about ways of what are like adjacencies around that um, that you can kind of like go in and uh, and build on. Yeah. Let's talk about co-founders. So, so what I see for a long time is that uh, the advice that you should work with somebody you've worked with before, known, known for a long time. You're starting to see some co-founder matching networks, some examples of people who were matched, you know, STEM centrics, I think met on Craigslist or something because yeah. they're roommates. I mean, you know, uh, Coinbase, I think met on Reddit. You know, it's easier to meet people on the internet now. Um, and so, and, and we're improving some of our search. What, how do you find a great co-founder? What, what to look for in a co-founder? What do you think? What advice do you have for people out there looking for co-founders? Yeah, it's this bit of a, a roundabout way of answering the question, but I actually think the one thing that I've taken away from my time at YC is that even before you have the co-founder, it's really important that there's just real clarity of vision and goal for what you're building. And I think the majority of that clarity should actually be in like one person's mind. And like making that more specific to finding a co-founder, I think it's really important for you to figure out, are you the co-founder that has the clarity around what needs to be built? Um, or are you the co-founder that's going to build it? And that then influences like who you co-found with, right? So I think the most common failure mode for co-founders, regardless if they knew each other or not, is both of them believe that they have the clarity of vision around what needs to be built. And they're just kind of constantly butting heads over like the direction to head in. And so uh, that is always my first kind of piece of advice. Now, and then conversely, you and the second most common failure mode is neither of you has a clarity. You're both just builders, right? And I think that's the downside to the co-founder matching networks. And actually, instantly, when I was at Y Combinator, we tried an experiment, which is essentially a co-founder matching thing to some extent. We experimented for a batch, I think it was just one batch, of letting people into, we fund people in YC, even if they didn't have an idea of what they were going to work on yet, and kind of let them use YC to like figure it out. In hindsight, we learned that YC is probably not a, a highly pressurized environment with, is not necessarily the best to like come up with startup ideas. But what it did unlock is we would commonly end up funding very smart, capable teams, but neither of them had just like clarity or conviction around what they wanted to build. And so the company just wouldn't go anywhere, right? So I think um, 
I think it's important to figure that out first and then kind of build your co-founding team around that. Any other failure modes as it relates to co-founders? You, you talk about the importance of being value aligned. What, yeah. what does that mean or what's a failure mode related to that? It's so, I think being, when I say value aligned, especially early on for founders, I mean, essentially the plain English way of saying that is what is your primary goal for starting the company? And you can always have a mixture of goals, right? Um, and like, you know, being blunt, one that doesn't like isn't sort of kosher, especially in like sort of Silicon Valley to talk about it, is like some people start a company because they just want to make a specific amount of money and like not have to worry about finances again, which is a totally fine goal to start a company. Um, but you know, if if that's your goal, if your goal is to make like ten million dollars from your startup and your co-founder's goal is to um, be famous, for example, like those are two very like those two things don't necessarily like correlate with each other um, uh, or couple couple with each other. So I think that's what I mean. It's like be very clear on what your goals are. Um, and it's actually okay to have different goals so long as you can you have a path to reconcile them at yeah. some point, right? Like, for example, maybe you want to make a large amount of money, your co-founder just wants to like manage a uh, a thousand person org. So long as you're okay with like making money over a long, long period of time, maybe there's a way that you start the company together and then like transition out at some point, right? Yeah. But I think it's just like clear to figure out that you don't have goals that are like fundamentally incompatible with each other. If you both want to be famous, for example, that's always going to cause issues because that's when you get people into like, you argue about who gets to talk to the press, who gets right. to run the board meetings, all of that right. kind of stuff. So is your advice basically either be the one with the vision or go find someone else with the vision yes. and be self-aware yes. and explicit about that. Yeah. And just be very clear. And if you, yeah. if you don't have the vision, like, yeah, just like f- find someone. Who's, and when I say like vision, it's sort of worry a little bit. Like it's like the Steve Jobs sort of like, you know, inspired ability to create like products for, through part of your brain. I, honestly, I think it's more about conviction than anything. Yeah. It's like, like, are you just really convinced that this down to level of specific details for at least the next six to 12 months over what you need to build. Um, do you have that inherent level of conviction? Cause if you do, by the way, you'll then inherently just start trying to convince people to work on the startup yeah. with you. And should that person always be the CEO regardless of whether they're the builder or not? Uh, yes. The, per- the person, the per, yeah, in my mind, like the person who has like that conviction and clarity always has to be the CEO. And how do you think about, uh, whether, the founder transition. Like if you know that someone is going to be great for the first year, first two years of the company and that they're probably not going to make it beyond that. Is that, is that a bad sign? Is that, is that normal? Should, is that a conversation you should have early? How do you think about that? Phenomenon? I definitely don't think it's a conversation to have early, right? Like, I mean, frankly, there are like a hundred reasons why the startup's going to fail within the first year, worrying about like who transitions as you get to scale. Anything in the bucket of here's what happens at scale is just like irrelevant when you're starting out. Any other failure modes regarding co-founder breakups? Like should co-founders be going to couples therapy, but maybe yeah. they can't afford it. Yep. <laughs> you know. but, but generally bad communication. How does that actually manifest? It's, um, okay. This is an interesting one because this is a case of where starting a company with someone you know before the startup and in particular, maybe you're good friends with can cause you to fail, right? Um, the obvious reason to start a company with someone that you know is that, um, ideally you have like some idea of their strengths and weaknesses and like, you know, they're not crazy and that you, you, right. Um, the downside to it is that you can risk the, you're risk averse when it comes to having candid conversation. And honestly, actually, I think with my first start of automatic, this was one of the sort of weaknesses we had is that, you know, Kovir is my cousin. Um, uh, Patrick and I became really good friends. So like the three of us had a really, like, I think we cared about preserving the relationship between the three of us more than being willingly, willing to like candidly, criticize either each other or the direction of the company um and i think 
that's really hard to do. And what inevitably ends up happening is it builds up, it builds up. And so it starts off as like, like small, you might call like pinches, right? Like someone like just sort of does small things and making direction, making decisions in direction you're not, you're not in full agreement with, but not enough to like openly disagree with them. And you just keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. And then you have like an explosion at some point. And then almost always what happens in those cases is, you know, resolve, someone leaves, company shuts down. And then six months later, you're both in a room together and just wondering like how you let it get so out of hand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think those things happen a lot more when you have a pre-existing relationship because yeah. you're more willing to just be open with someone if like you don't have as much of the, the friendship aspect to it. Yeah. And if uh, right now, you know, the people out there listening who, you know, either have an idea or how do you think recommend sort of the sourcing part of the co-founder should they run it like they might run a recruiting process at a company or you know it's it's interesting it depends again on how it sort of depends on where you are like okay let if you are in this position I was leaving YC where I knew that I wanted, I knew I wanted to start a company I didn't know what or with who right and and honestly I Given that, I just yeah, ran it as a recruiting process, essentially. I just had like a list of people and I spent lots of time with them, coffee meetings, lunches, until I like drawed it down to people that were at the intersection of complement to my strengths and weaknesses that I wanted to work with and available. And I can think of multiple companies that follow that route and it worked out fine. Um, probably though, if you can, it is best for that to be a little bit more organic. I think the... I think being strategic about it over a longer period of time running up to a startup is better. So for example, I think if you're in the back of your mind, if you're like, you know, working at Facebook right now, if you think you might want to start a company at some point in the future, the way to go about that strategically is figure out like who are the people that you would work with and let's like, get to know them well. Um, and just like organically like create that yeah. network. And how about recommendations for coming up with ideas? Yeah, that one's hard. I think, Okay, again, so at a meta level, I think what's important with coming up with ideas is figuring out what your, figuring out what your actual strategy is for coming up with ideas and, and committing to it. And by that, I mean, so I think you can either go top down or bottoms up when you're coming up with ideas. Bottoms up, I think is, um, is definitely like, that's like canonical YC advice. And I think it's more like, observe problems in your own life keep an eye out sort of um like let it sort of percolate in the back of your mind and then only work on a problem that's solving something that you want to exist yourself and i think that's like many many cases like probably the majority of successful startups i know came from that kind of like um it was like the founder had a curiosity about something thought it was a good idea built a solution and and it kind of just took off from there i do think conversely though there are ways of starting a company that's more tops down when you're like okay i want to pick a gigantic market and um um, build a company in this market or you identify a new trend like crypto is a trend um like maybe i should start a crypto company like on the surface those there's a lot of disdain i think for that latter way of starting a company mostly because many of the people who follow that route tend to be um like low conviction type people and so you kind of just run into the problems of a founder who has low conviction on something they're always like bouncing around to the next hot thing um also actually if you know what you're doing that can actually be a perfectly fine way to start a company like if you then do actually strike on something that's a uh, a monumental shift or trend that can just like propel your startup forward massively right so all of that rambling essentially means i don't think there's a hard and fast way of coming up with ideas but the preferred way is to just be noting down things that you're observing and the the, the sort of like the, the the follow-on from that actually is like the best way to come up with a startup idea is probably just to in, lead an interesting life and be curious right like if you put yourself in a position where you have actual problems right yeah. um it sounds weird to say but yeah it's like if you go work at a company if you start a family like if yeah. you like if you just live life 
you would probably be in a position to have startup ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a little bit like it's, there's a lot that was like the Zen and the art motorcycle maintenance yeah. where it's like, you it's know, the books. Books, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a lot of like that kind of idea around like, you know, like sort of putting yourself in the position to be great, um, yeah. as opposed to trying like force it. And what's, what's the connection to that book just for a second? Just like be one with the motorcycle. I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember what it is. There's, um, there's a thing about like, how do you become a great painter? And it's like, f- oh, no, how do you like, yeah, how do you do great painting? And it's, um, I forget the quote. You become um, a paint. Yeah, it was, it was something. You know, I, 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 I completely forgot it, but like there, there, there is a there's a quote that ties into it somehow. Yeah, I, I love that book. Another. Uh, let's talk about other mistakes founders make. Uh, so vanity metrics. What are so common vanity metrics people pursue, and what's some underappreciated advice you think people should? Uh, yeah, so I think um, the vanity metrics early on when you're starting a company uh, or launching something really revolve heavily around. Um, like non-engagement metrics like I, I think you know like it's really easy to first just focus on just raw number of signups and registrations and profile completes and and um activations that kind of stuff. and to be fair these are all really important things I, I don't think it's that people pay attention to the wrong metrics per se like when you start off that's all you have it's more being quick enough to switch to like as your startup lives always be reassessing the metrics you're tracking right so i think it is for example really common for a company to just chase top line metrics and so an easy one here is revenue um and it's an obvious one you should always like you know, if you're especially if you're a business as opposed to consumer product you should be tracking revenue and revenue growth um the downside to only tracking revenue is are you actually looking at like the drivers behind that if those are improving so, so some of the um uh so it's in trip white razor series b um ali Ragani um uh joined our board and yc continuity led, led the round um, and he actually gave some really great advice within a week or two like he said like yeah i'd like you to be reporting monthly and quarterly on just like these are the key metrics for the company like you know, revenue hires being made companies signing up all that kind of stuff but i'd also like to have a set of like driver metrics and driver metrics are what are the metrics you think like underlie the top level metrics and let's report on those month to month and let's see if we think those drivers should change right so i think the the a famous example of this might be facebook realized that a key driver for their growth was uh, how many friends is someone adding within like x period of time from signing up to facebook and so i think it's understanding what your driver metrics are and being really focused being focused on those in addition to top line metrics that um just add a, a help you sort of like see ahead a little bit and i think many startups don't do that what an example of what that could look like for you or what are other examples of- oh for, so for us for example um for two again like for two bytes business like an example of a driver metric might be average number of offers um being made to candidates on the platform right so as an example like we uh, we might increase revenue but see a decrease in the average number of offers being made to candidate candidates and that's not necessarily a good thing for us um because that that's like decreasing the experience of using triple white as an engineer or a candidate and that's fundamentally the most important thing yeah so another mistake you point out is that companies sometimes uh, ignore retention once they raise a seed round talk a little bit about w- why they do that and what trade-offs they need to make in order to not do that yeah it's always a lot of this stuff from like the outside it seems like so obvious right it's like how could anyone who's like reasonably intelligent and raises vc funding like just ignore retention um and i don't think anyone actually ignores retention it's not like you're like unaware of it it's more that um again like this it's sort of like willful ignorance, I think, right? It's just like, it's like, I'm going to, I'm aware that there's a retention problem because the numbers show and I'm like in there and I'm looking at them, but I'm not going to allocate time or resources to fixing it right now. I'm going to allocate time and resources to 
getting more growth. And that's kind of what happens. And at some point I'll like fix retention and just requires a lot of discipline to say, Hey, actually I'm willing to go through three months of flat revenue because I'm going to take a bet on fixing retention when that's actually often longer term, the right thing to do. Yeah. The uh, other thing you talk about is that uh, the idea of a focus, particularly on a customer set. And sometimes there are a set of customers that might want, that might be good now, but it might not be good for the long term, or might ask you for features that, you know, aren't going to be part of the core, core offering or won't scale. Or how should companies think about, you know, do you always, you know, sort of walk a hard line in terms of, you no, know, we're only doing what's best for the long term or are the times we've given a little bit? How do you think about that? So again, I think this falls into the class of problem where it's like you just can't prematurely optimize for it. You just kind of have to fix it as it comes up. And actually, one of of the things I learned from working on, say, Paul Graham at YC in particular was how we operated YC really had this ethos of don't fix problems until they become real problems. Um, uh, obviously not too much to the extreme. You're still trying to like think ahead. And, right. and it's a little and, bit the blitz scaling approach too. Yep. So, but like, I think this fits into it, right? When you're starting a company, the number one goal is just get customers. Um, once you have customers at some point in the future, if you're lucky enough, you have the problem of, Hey, I've got like competing. I've got like one group of customers that wants like high touch enterprise sales support and another that like is coming in using the product quickly and is self-serve like which do i double down on pretty common thing for an enterprise company and so again i don't think you actually make any decisions about that in advance it's more making the decision is the important thing the way i think companies fail there is they're like oh we've got all these users they want slightly different things but instead of going in and trying to sort of profile your users and figure out like what are my groups and what do they need and how much intersection is there and just actually devoting some time to that, you just try and ignore it and think I'm just going to sort of build something for everyone um, because you don't want to lose a single customer. Right. How about recruiting? Let's talk about some of the biggest mistakes, uh, recruiting mistakes that f- founders make, uh, especially you know the beginning and then and as as they evolve and scale. Yeah. So I with recruiting and if we're talking about sort of you know like the sort of consensus advice out there i think the piece of advice i most disagree with is if there is doubt there is no doubt so this gets thrown out like you know so you yeah the idea is oh yeah right now yeah right so um the reason i think that's bad advice is because um i think doubt is a really important signal to pay attention to and use as sort of a a catalyst for analyzing what it is you're hiring for and what's causing you doubt but the doubt itself is not a reason not to hire someone right like um you might have doubt because you've never hired anyone in your life before it'd be and unless you're like a mad person you should absolutely have doubt about hiring someone right and um, you might have doubt because like you think your startup's dying and you don't know if you're going to raise any like money or so, like there's all kinds of reasons why you're like totally rational to have some doubt i think what's important is and this is like what we what we do so internally at Tripwire for our own hiring is like have checklists. Like what are the what are the key things I need in someone to like be successful in this role? What are the deal breakers? What are the deal breakers? And when I say there's doubt about this person, like what does that mean specifically? Like map it onto a list of things you're looking for. And maybe the answer is still like, look, like the reason I have doubt is because I think this person is fundamentally uh, not excited about the vision for the company and like thinks we're doing something that we're not actually doing. Totally legit reason to not hire that person. But like maybe maybe have a conversation with them about that directly and say, hey, I, I, this is what we're concerned about. Like that. That's why I think um, doubt is okay and it's okay to hire people if you have doubt so long as you know what your concerns are and can you mitigate them somehow, either pre them joining or after them joining. Are there any underappreciated uh, things where it relates to building recruiting machine or system? Or, or or failure modes that that people make that aren't uh, as well captured by the current startup lore. Yeah, just the experience of interviewing. So it's kind of like 
this is like so much low hanging fruit. So just as the, like the, the default experience for most people when they're applying, especially to startups is to get a very quick initial reply and then just completely drop off and not hear for weeks. Um, like this was like, so, um, early on with is something that we realized we'd actually launch as a common app because we was, Hey, we're just going to let you like apply to hundreds and hundreds of YC companies. And I realized really quickly that, Hey, actually a, there's a, there's a big, variance in quality of candidate experience at companies and candidate experience matters to us right so where that like tangible things you can translate that into is if you can make your on-site interview something that people actually just enjoyed like like casual fun conversation at lunch like just something that it's like oh hey i actually really enjoy going to interview at that company um not only does that help you close the people you want to hire but actually just creates like word of mouth effect like we've had people who we didn't hire but have referred other people in because they just had a great time meeting the team and is it as simple as just have lunch with them and have a cool conversation or, or well, here's the thing. it's okay here's it um to some extent it is but the input that goes into that is especially so now let's say we're talking about it early on like so you've got like you know it's like they're up like 10 15 20 ish people or something like that um so training people in the company to just be to acknowledge when someone's in interviewing and just say hello to them and not just be like in their own world doing their own thing like little things like that can make a big difference yeah. actually like it's just again it's just to give you more detail like we early on mature by i pay a lot of attention when every single candidate when they interview at a company and try and get their feedback on it just to try and get into like what what influences people when they're job searching and it really comes down to the level of as soon as i walked in like I didn't know where to go, but someone came over and sort of introduced themselves and put me at ease and said they go get the person. And that just made me feel like very like calm. And then I actually performed better on the interview too because I was less calm. Contrasted with I got to the lobby, no one was there. I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I like didn't have a number to call. Like I just hung out for like 15 minutes by myself. Like though that level of detail can actually, especially early on where every hire is so key, can make a really, really big difference to your trajectory on hiring. Have you learned anything about your data about when people are most likely to leave companies or any advice for people trying to retain companies. Daniel Gross had this point of view that people are most likely to leave on vacation, actually, because they're sort of reminded of, how, you know, have time to think about <laughs> their life. And they're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm in a really great mood. And uh, I don't know, maybe companies shouldn't have vacation policy. <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, that's interesting. He, he didn't make that extrapolation. <laughs> fair fair <laughs> enough. Um, I, I think... Um, I don't think there's anything wild about this, right? I think in general, like six, I think especially in Silicon Valley, people today are thinking about their career in like six month increments. And so I think every six, I think within six months of someone starting, it's probably more important than ever to make sure you're checking in, seeing how they're feeling about stuff. At the one year point is an obvious point because it's the first time people vest. Um, yeah, I, I think I think for key people that you want to retain, having a process. This is actually one of the places where I think sort of big company process stuff like performance reviews. Like you've got to you've got to divorce, divorce some of like the formality of that stuff from like the the underlying function it can serve. Yeah. And so you don't need to do like a formalized like one week long performance review process with someone six months after joining your three person startup. But like you do want to be having those kind of like cadence of communication with them about like hey like. How are you feeling about everything? Does this fit into your career plan? Like all that kind of stuff. And, and what does hiring too fast look like? Or how do you know you're hiring too fast uh, or too slow? So hiring too slow is an interesting one, right? And, and of the two, like hiring too slow is definitely like the, the, if you're going, if you're going to skew in one direction, you definitely want to hire, like optimize and hiring too slow because it doesn't like, it doesn't kill you. But I think the way you know you're hiring too slowly. 
honestly, if you're close as founders and your team, you just seem close to burnout, right? And like the um, like if energy levels are going down, like there, there's there's a lot for, to be said for being scrappy and just like it, startups are tough and like early on, especially it can skew towards not having tons of work life balance. But it's only so long that you can sustain that for uh, hiring too fast. Though I think honestly, what that mostly looks like is just like confusion and bad decisions like as soon as you actually are slower to launch and the quality of what you're launching goes down whether it's like marketing copy or whether it's um like actual software like that's a sign that you're hiring too fast because it means that somehow someone made a decision that wasn't good enough and that often comes from there being too many people joining a company too quickly so no one kind of knows what the right way to do anything is and yeah. um, and an internal conflict too right like i think i think conflict plus just like lower quality of product and and loss of speed aside you're hiring too fast yeah. what you do you uh, advised that people looking to join companies should think like an investor and that means both understanding companies the way an investor understands companies and also understand terms the way, way an, a, an investor understands terms anything you want to add to that that's really important for employees to understand yeah, I, I really, I, I think the analogy of thinking like investor works well just because you are, you're investing your time. I think like Hacker News is always quick to point out that like an investor can diverse, an investor can invest in like parallel and there's like a, a, a person you have to invest in series. But, um, yeah, I do ultimately, I think, I think the number one thing I just say on that is investors invest in companies largely because of how likely they think the companies to succeed more so. And despite kind of what people say, more so than what they think about like the culture or what it would be like to work there, which makes sense because they're not actually working there. Right. Yeah. I think it can actually make sense for employees to think more on that line too. Right. Cause ultimately I think your experience of a startup will be largely determined by how successful it is. And so it's okay to work at a company where maybe it's not your dream passion product, but it's like on a fantastic growth trajectory. Yeah. Fundraising and line there, you raised, you know, uh, B and any, what are the biggest differences between raising a seed round and then raising an A and a, a, and a B? How should people, you know, uh, I think ultimately just like the, the later stage fundraising gets, the more it's about your progress. You, the more, the less it becomes about what you're going to do and more about like explaining what you've done so far. And so especially once you get to a seed, story always matters a ton, right? But I think like for your seed round, story is like a hundred percent of what you're pitching. At your series A round, it's a mix of sort of here's story of the future and here's some proof points around what we've already done. Yeah. But series B and onwards, it's basically like story is just like the sort of like the vessel in which you put in all the results you've had so far. Cause your pitch moves away from I'm going to do all these things to I've done this amount. I've already done X with Y resources. Give me more resources. And like, you're going to see an extrapolation of, of this going forward. That's exciting for both of us. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, my guest today has been Harsh Tiger. Uh, Harsh, for people who want to go uh, deeper into, into your work and more about Triple Byte, where can you point them? Probably my Twitter. I kind of like sporadically use it, but when um, my Twitter account's at Harjeet, which is my full name. And TripleByte.com. Awesome. Harsh, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 